Welcome to the Weird Works Podcast. I'm Dr. Christy, your host. Join us for conversations about alternative and sometimes controversial healthcare topics. This podcast will provide the evidence that you need in order to make informed decisions about your health, to empower you with the facts that you need to advocate for your health, and to encourage you that there is hope your body heals. Join us from experts from all things weird, as well as the testimonies of people with stories of radical healing who were once told that perhaps their condition was a death sentence, that they would just need to live with it, or that drugs and invasive surgery were the only answer. Let's get into agreement that if there is something natural and non-invasive that could be helpful, that it could be your first option rather than your last resort. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Christy here on the Weird Works Podcast, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Christine Horner. She is a medical doctor, and she's a double board certified surgeon, and she's a best-selling author. I've got her book here, and it's behind her, Waking the Warrior Goddess. And the reason why I wanted to bring Dr. Horner on the podcast is because like we intend on the podcast is to bring the credibility to um, alternative therapies that you might not be aware of, or maybe didn't know that there's a lot of science that back it to inform you so that you can make healthier decisions for yourself. And so Dr. Horner has been huge in the breast cancer arena. She's even was, I learned this recently, um, that she was involved with the Clinton administration and actually got um, something passed where uh, health insurance companies had to pay for reconstruction after women had mastectomies. And even recently, um, she's been informing college campuses and working on a program to inform younger teens and um, women in their 20s about how to prevent breast cancer in the first place. And she'll tell you this, as she witnessed for sure in her surgical career, that the incidence of cancer she noticed was on the rise, as well as happening in younger and younger adults. Right, Dr. Horner? Well, uh, yeah. So actually, the numbers have kind of plateaued. But um, the alarming thing for me was to watch my patients get younger and younger until I was finally doing breast reconstruction on women in their 20s, which um, I thought was just crazy. So I started going through the medical research. And this is, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, looking to see, you know, what, if anything, women could do to help to lower the risk, because at the time, you know, we didn't really know we were just like, oh, it's, you know, bad luck or bad genes or whatever. But um, the research uh, that I found even that long ago, um, there were 1000s of studies that pointed out that, um, Breast cancer is primarily a diet and lifestyle disease, which is good news because we have the ability to really influence our risk of it. And, uh, you know, as well as like colon cancer and prostate cancer and all the different kind of chronic diseases in general, we have uh, tremendous control over it through through diet and lifestyle. So when I found that, um, I actually uh, started getting trained in natural medicine. I'm certified in Ayurveda, the traditional system of medicine from India. And um, at that point, I just, I was like, man, people really need to know this information because there's, um, it's just not, you know, out there. And so I actually pitched the television stations in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I was in practice um, as a plastic surgeon. Now I live in San Diego. Uh, but they wanted, they said, yeah, they would go ahead and have me do a segment on the newscast on complementary and alternative medicine. And, and so I 
actually loved doing that so much and teaching people how to become and stay healthy naturally and avoiding unnecessary illnesses. And so eventually I ended up leaving my practice as a plastic surgeon and um, have dedicated myself full time to teaching people how to become and stay healthy naturally. I love that. It's awesome. And one of my favorite things, honestly, is when, you know, it's one thing for a chiropractor and alternative medicine to be a proponent of natural and nutrition and everything. But what my favorite thing is, is when we can come together and get traditional medical approaches together with alternative, because I think there is research there Mm -hmm. that also shows that people who do both at the right times fare far better than people who do exclusively one or the other. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So tell us a little bit just how you got into this, because I know you have a personal story with your mom that kind of launched you into being interested in your career in the first place. Yeah, I had, it was very interesting because of course it takes forever to become a plastic surgeon. (laughs) Like I'm board certified in general surgery as well as plastic surgery. So it was like 15 years after high school of education. And as soon as I started my practice, my mom, uh, who had had breast cancer, uh, well, the first time around she'd had it when I was in college, you know, a million years ago. And then um, she was diagnosed with a second breast cancer on the opposite side about 13 years after that. And they caught it early. It was uh, stage one, you know, with no lymph node metastasis. And so they, you know, always tell us, hey, you get mammograms and breast exams in the hopes of catching it early. And, um, and that's the way that we're going to save lives. So my mom, as you can imagine, did everything that Western medicine told her to do because she'd been a cancer survivor. And so when that second cancer showed up, uh, they caught it in an early stage. So you would think she'd be fine, right? But five years later, she ends up getting metastatic cancer to her uh, femur, the bone in her leg. And, um, in short order, she kind of just gave up and didn't want to have any, you know, chemo or radiation or anything like that. And so she died about nine months later. So that really, you know, rocked my world. I'll say I was involved in the American Cancer Society and, you know, all out of kind of honoring my mom and the, the disease that she had. And so, you know, when that happened, and then again, you know, looking at my practice and seeing women in their 20s with breast cancer, I just thought, my God, I mean, there, there's got to be something that women can do. And as I mentioned, you know, earlier, it really is a case about um, really understanding what a healthy diet is and what the components are of that, uh, different kinds of nutritional supplements, you know, various different lifestyle approaches. And of course, everybody's heard about, you know, exercise, but there's also, you know, sleep and all those kinds of things. They have enormous effects on our health. And so if you do the right combinations of them, you can really minimize your risk of developing breast cancer or really, you know, any other kind of uh, chronic disease. So uh, as I mentioned before, too, I started doing a segment on the television newscast um, in Cincinnati, and I just found it so interesting. And I felt like I was able to reach some so many more people and And I felt like really focusing on prevention is something that can prevent suffering and people just needless, you know, suffering. So um, I was working 14 hours a day, seven days a week to pull off doing my practice and then also doing the, the television. And so after three years of that, I just woke up one morning and I thought, like I'm going to start crying. (laughs) I don't have any friends. I, you know, my whole life was work, work, work. And so, uh, you know, I just kind of like in that moment, I went, okay, I can't do this anymore. And my passion was really, you know, teaching people how to become and stay healthy naturally. So I quit my practice 
And, uh, and so now I've written a couple of books. Um, the first book is called Waking the Warrior Goddess and the subtitle, Dr. Christine Horner's Program to Protect Against and Fight Breast Cancer. And the second book is called Radiant Health, Ageless Beauty and Extraordinary, how to you know, uh, create extraordinary health and longevity. And uh, both of those are actually, um, they won national book awards for the best book in health medicine and nutrition. Uh, both of those books did. And then I've just spent all my time doing television and radio mostly and um, just out there trying to educate people as much as I possibly can, because it's pretty simple, you know, to really uh, create uh, tremendous improvements in your health. I agree. Well, and thank you for being a spokesperson for this type of work, because that's something that we're huge on is getting out there in the community and letting them know that there's a whole nother system of healthcare out there that drugs and surgeries don't have to be the only answer. And even more importantly, like, we also don't have to wait until inevitable, inevitable disease and sickness and then apply, like pour on the emergency medicine and all the heroics. Right. Like, what do you do in that gap of time between what seems like perfect health to a diagnosis, right? right? So that's kind of an awesome segue into the thermography because that really does help identify problems in this critical window. And what we always tell our patients, and I'm sure you say the same, is that, you know, the earlier in any kind of chronic disease or onset that you could find and detect something, the more likely that what you're talking about, something that I do every day, that diet and nutrition will be a good solution for you, right? Like we don't want to find it late and then think that we can like do something with stage four right. metastatic cancer. Although a lot of the awesome research shows like in your book that the same things that we do for prevention can actually help with some of the spreading of cancer and the later prognosis as right. well. Yeah. So tell us about thermography. What is it? So thermography is uh, simply an infrared a picture of the body. And it was first used by the military where they were looking for the enemy at night because it's looking for heat uh, patterns basically. And so decades ago, they were like, hey, you know, this is probably a tool that we could use in medicine, which uh, actually, believe it or not, a lot of the things that we use in medicine had their uh, foundation or, or origins in, in the military. So, um, the early kind of thermography was not very refined, but now it's really, really sophisticated. And basically it, in the most simplistic view of it, you can, um, we look at it as kind of a fancy thermometer. And what it's doing is it's measuring the surface temperature of the skin. Like that's all that it does is measure the surface temperature of the skin. And it shows us these images that look like it's, you know, photography basically, but all the different colors that we'll see are things that represent different temperatures. Now, um, what we look for when we're taking pictures of the human body is we know what the normal patterns are. And then we're looking for anything that varies from that. So it could be our, our what we're seeing areas that are too hot, and that can indicate uh, too much blood flow to the area, which might be attributed to um, inflammation or infection. <clears throat> Sometimes a, a, a structure that's overactive or producing too much, such as the thyroid. So when we see like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, sometimes we'll see some heat patterns over the thyroid where that there shouldn't be any patterns over at all. And then, um, and then it also will show uh, uh, if the areas are too 
cool compared to what they should be. And so that could indicate another, you know, disease process where it's not getting enough, you know, blood flow, or maybe the function is a little underactive. And again, the thyroid is a good um, example of that, uh, where we'll see these cool patterns over the thyroid. And then we can say, hey, maybe your, you know, thyroid is underactive. But the the really um, amazing thing about thermography is it's a very unique tool. So it's the only tool that we have, which is called, which we consider a physiological test versus an anatomical test. So for instance, when we're looking at the breast uh, and specifically, you know, we have all these different um, kinds of tools that we use or tests that we use like mammography and ultrasound and MRI scans and CAT scans. These are all anatomical tests. And in the breast area, uh, uh, which is like super important, um, they will only show things once you already have them. Whereas thermography can show you physiological changes um, that can get, be kind of early warning signs. So there's no structural changes yet. It's just physiological changes. And sometimes we can see them years, you know, before somebody would develop a, uh, a, a cancer or other, um, you know, significant problem. And so the whole idea with thermography is we see these physiological changes, like most of the time is too much heat that we see or an increase in blood vessel patterns and there's um, specific characteristic to those blood vessel patterns that can be even more of a warning sign for us. And in those stages is when we can say, okay, um, if you don't have breast cancer, we always check that out. We do combinations of tests. Like I usually always recommend that you do an ultrasound in addition to that. So we can look anatomically to make sure that there's no structural changes. And if there's not, then we know that it's safe for us to do what I call the full court press <laughs> on diet and lifestyle and, <clears throat> and also certain key nutritional supplements. And I have been doing this, I don't know, for maybe 15 years or so and found that uh, we can see people that have increased patterns in thermography. And if we do this full court press and add these uh, nutritional supplements, we can see dramatic improvements in the patterns within about three months, but so super fast. And, and then you can visualize or see the pictures of that improvement so that the uh, you know, people who are having the thermography done, they can see that what they're doing is really making a difference, which really helps, you know, with motivation to, to keep them on the program. But um, the whole thing is, is that this allows us to really kind of keep uh, tabs on what is happening in the health in the body. And then as soon as we see some, you know, changes that are not the ones that we want, then we can really work on it with diet and lifestyle and supplements. And we can reverse those things where, when it's very early and easily reversible stage. And the whole idea is that we hope to have that then prevent you from ever having anything that's really serious. That, and that's what we say, like prevention is the cure. That it is sure the cure. is. Right. Well, and isn't it true too, because thermography can find it so much sooner than traditional mammograms or even breast self-examination, that isn't that why the traditional medical world is not, doesn't approve or cover thermography? I always thought it was because that they couldn't confirm the findings. So like thermography finds it way sooner than a mammogram or a biopsy would ever detect it. So is there some truth to that? 
Well, so I think just the languaging of it is like, for me, thermography should not be used to mine for breast cancers. We're looking for physiological changes and you're not going to see those on anatomical tests, but we're looking for physiological changes. So that's going to show increased heat, increased, you know, blood vessel patterns. Uh, Mostly that's what we're looking for. That tells us, hey, you got too much inflammation in your body. You're doing something, you know, that's really throwing yourself off and you know, let's work on rebalancing it. Now, the the issue with thermography being accepted by the Western, uh, you know, medicine kind of community, um, that's that's a whole different thing. And basically, what happened was that um, there was a big, huge study that was done looking at the effectiveness of mammograms, and this is way back in the uh, 1970s. And okay. so. Um, what they were doing in that study was looking at kind of the quality of the mammograms and the efficacy, you know, of mammograms. And so um, the thermography had just started being used uh, for uh, the human body, taking pictures of the human body. And so somebody said, hey, we should include thermography, you know, in this uh, mammogram study. And so they just kind of haphazardly threw it into the study. And, you know, it was, it was new kind of technology. It wasn't computerized, which it is now. Now, super sophisticated. People weren't really trained on it. The cameras didn't have any um, kind of, you know, quality control of it. Nothing was systematized. So of course, you know, at, in that study, because it was just thrown in there, you know, in a, in a haphazard way, it didn't show that thermography was of value. Now, that particular kind of conclusion from that study is something where that um, has just kind of continued where, where people or radiologists think, oh, thermography really isn't a value. But what's happened since then is it's become an extraordinarily sophisticated uh, tool and it's uh, computerized and highly sensitive. And there's been um, you know, all sorts of guidelines that have been established over time so that we can see, you know, what's happening um, as far as an, an elevated risk. If we see these findings, um, the main thing that we see is that there's going to be an elevated risk of developing breast cancer at some point in the future. So there's actually been tons and tons and tons of studies that have been done, 800 studies in the medical literature on breast thermography alone. And it shows that it has tremendous value. So it's something that, um, well, it can be used as a predictive, we'll say, as far as an elevated risk of developing breast cancer at some point in the future. And again, you know, it's at a stage where we can interrupt that progression and and get things to reverse. It also allows us to monitor the health of the breast um, after somebody's had cancer therapy. So you can see kind of the effectiveness of the cancer therapy. You can get early warnings uh, of physiological changes after, you know, somebody's uh, had, had the cancer. So it gives us the ability to really uh, monitor that. Um, and, uh, and so it really is something that has, like I said, this unique and tremendous value of um, using a non-invasive tool, there's no radiation, you know, used in it, it's simply a picture where we can monitor what's happening with someone's health and then, you know, uh, be able to reverse that. So things are changing um, a little bit. I'm actually on the board of the American Academy of Thermology, which is the the national um, kind of society for for thermography. Um, There's lots of medical doctors that are involved, you know, with that, the physical rehab doctors that do diagnosis of neurological 
neurological or muscular conditions, particularly in the extremities. Um, thermography is invaluable uh, for them as a tool. Uh, veterinarians are using it, you know, for animals. Um, so there's a lot of doctors, even radiologists are, are doing that um, in addition to their, um, you know, standard tests that they're doing. So there's more acceptance is coming and, and the organization, the American Academy of Thermology is really dedicated to um, having standardizations uh, in, within the whole industry and then um, kind of forwarding the education about thermography to uh, medical doctors so that they can have a, a clear understanding of the value of thermography and hopefully have it be something that becomes an accepted tool and is used widely by everybody. That'd be awesome. Well, and I just, I was thinking as you were talking too, another benefit is just the mental well-being of the patient, because sometimes people might feel that like, am I making a responsible decision to try to handle these conditions naturally or to forego some of the traditional, you know, medical procedures. And so I love that they can get a measurement tool and they can see every three months, the progress of your, what you're doing is working so that they just can take a sigh of relief and know that they are being responsible and they're doing right. the right things. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll just mention also that when we're looking at all the different tests that evaluate the breast uh, uh, tissue, we find that no test is perfect. So mammograms are a excellent example of that, where we used to call them our golden standard. We said, oh, that's the only test that you need to have done. And it turns out that in the long-term studies that were done that were like 25 years uh, in follow-up, they found that mammography is like, oops, you know, it isn't as good as what we thought it was. And there's a lot of problems that we really haven't been, you know, addressing. And, it, and so for instance, um, it uses radiation, which we know increases the risk of breast cancer. And to me, it just seems absurd to be using a test that increases the risk of the disease that you're looking for. It's like, Agreed. what, you know, and then, you know, it's not specific. So um, it will pick up all sorts of things and it'll say, hey, you know, this looks suspicious. You need to have a biopsy done. And so when women go in to have a biopsy done, it turns out that the mammogram was wrong 80, 80% of the time. I mean, that's like unbelievable inaccuracy and the trauma, the emotional trauma that women have to, you know, be called back and have to go in for a biopsy and everything. I mean, there actually are studies that look at the psychological impact of having a false, uh, 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 positive, you know, diagnosis and um, it's long lasting. I mean, for like six months, people are severely kind of screwed up, you know, from, from having to go through that experience. So no test is perfect. You know, every single one of them will miss things. Mammography will miss up to 50% of tumors in people with dense breasts, which is why you can't use it in younger women because everybody has dense breasts, um, you know, when they're younger. Um, and the same thing, you know, ultrasound MRI scans, like none of them are perfect. And thermography isn't perfect either. So none of these tests should be used as standalone tests. And what the experts show is that you really need to have multiple tests done to have the best evaluation. Uh, and, and we call it specificity and sensitivity, meaning if something is wrong, we'll find it. And then, uh, or if you do find something wrong, it actually is wrong, you know, rather than being benign like uh, mammography does. And so normally what I recommend is that people use uh, a combination of thermography with ultrasound. So I recommend ultrasounds once a year. Um, sometimes we'll require them or recommend them um, earlier than that, if somebody has some changes on their uh, thermography and, uh, and then physical examination, because that's also extremely helpful. 
And what are the next steps? So somebody has a potential, you know, positive risky thermography finding, they definitely mm -hmm. do like an uh, ultrasound. Um, and then what? So if the ultrasound shows that there's no structural changes with it, um, then uh, we go right into, you know, doing a lot of education as far as diet, lifestyle, and supplements. If there is a problem that we see on ultrasound or something that looks a little suspicious, then sometimes we'll do some further testing like an MRI scan, you know, to be able to see that, you know, area a little bit uh, better or, you know, if it if indicated a biopsy. But my book, uh, Waking the Warrior Goddess, the whole point of writing that book was that it was meant to be a guidebook. I went through the medical research and looked at anything and everything that had any kind of statistically significant influence on breast cancer. So the things that you want to avoid because it increases your risk, the things you want to favor because it decreases your risk. So everything's based on the science. And that way, you know, when people go on the internet and they're looking for things, you can find anything. So I kind of wanted to cut through all of that and get to the truth of it. Um, so it's, you know, based on everything that I found in the medical research, you know, that shows an influence. And then, uh, so it's really talking about various different, uh, you know, diet and lifestyle patterns. So just kind of briefly, it's like the, the healthiest diet that the research uh, shows is having it be primarily plant-based. So you want organically grown, fresh, you know, wholesome plant-based uh, diet. Minimize red meat because uh, the studies show that if you eat a lot of red meat, that those women have up to a 400% increased risk of breast cancer. It's one of the number one risk factors for breast cancer. Sugars, processed foods. I mean, those are pure poison to the human body. And sugar's favorite food is, uh, I'm sorry, cancer favorite food is sugar. Yeah. So the more refined carbohydrates and sugars that you're eating, the faster these tumors are going to grow. It causes huge inflammation in the body. So that's something, you know, you really want to avoid, you know, and all the kind of, you know, processed foods and packaged things. So it's pretty simple just to think, okay, you know, I want stuff that I could grow in a garden, you know, and get, and uh, just real clean sources, you know, for protein, if uh, you choose to do that too. And then as far as the lifestyle is concerned, lots of these things, you know, we've heard of. So exercise, you know, uh, most people think, okay, with exercise is something that's really affecting our cardiovascular system. But we've found um, after we um, did the, um, they figured out the genetic uh, code, you know, for human yeah. beings and we mapped that out. Now, one of the favorite things that researchers do is they will test everything and then look at our genes and looking to see, okay, how does it affect our genes? What genes are being turned on and expressed? What genes are being turned off? And so uh, with exercise, what we found is that not only is good for the cardiovascular system, but when you exercise, there's all sorts of hormonal uh, changes that occur. And genetically, we find that there are uh, genes that are activated that um, help to suppress tumors. Um, there's genes that uh, create longevity um, and decrease inflammation, all sorts of stuff. So there's lots of things that happen when we exercise, which is why there's such a huge impact on lowering the risk of many different kinds of chronic diseases. With uh, breast cancer, we see at least a 30 to 40% reduction in breast cancer in people who um, exercise consistently. And if you do very vigorous exercise on a regular basis, they found that you can reduce your risk up to 60% or, or awesome. even more. That's great. Well, and that's awesome because I know that the numbers that patients get for like, okay, now if you do chemo after surgery, it's another 7%, you know, 
improvement. And then now it's radiation after chemo gives you maybe another 3%. And so uh -huh. you're talking about 50, 60, 70% right. better odds. And they're talking uh -huh. about three, 7%. Right. And then of course, all that comes with like all additional health risks that like, at some point, those people are still going to have to do what you're talking about to put their bodies and their health that's right. together. Yeah. Right? yeah the, I mean, that's absolutely <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, another great example is sleep, you know, it's, here it is cheap, it's free, <laughs> but they find that if you go to bed before 10 o'clock and you get up before six o'clock, that those are the optimal hours for sleep. And, uh, there's this unbelievable impact that the hours, the absolute hours that we sleep, and then the times that we sleep, the, the impact is just I mean, it's kind of jaw dropping. So for instance, what happens is if we go to bed before 10 o'clock, uh, we have all these hormonal fluctuations that occur throughout the day and throughout the night. That's normal. If you go to bed before 10 o'clock, those hormonal fluctuations are optimal. If you go to bed after 10 o'clock, they're not. If you stay up to midnight on a regular basis, it causes our hormones to be so out of whack. And I'm not talking just, you know, estrogen and progesterone and, and so forth, but, you know, things like melatonin, our sleep hormone, uh, cortisol, the, you know, stress hormone, insulin, which is a hormone that helps to facilitate getting glucose into the cells. So all these different hormones are completely screwed up so badly that they find that people that stay up to midnight on a regular basis have almost twice the incidence of obesity, diabetes, diabetes, heart disease, and a whole variety of different cancers, including breast cancer. Wow. So you it's not okay to be a night owl. You just, so what the recommendation is, is to back your bedtime up 15 minutes every week. So you're okay. gradually training your body to go to bed at an earlier time. And once you got it backed up before 10 o'clock and getting up before six o'clock, you'd be amazed at how much better you feel. I mean, this is something where um, I've had women who have uh, severe kind of menopausal symptoms and hot flashes and so forth. And so they, you know, go to bed before 10 o'clock or start doing that and their hot flashes go away. So it induces an incredible amount of balance in the body and, and, and like, and the reverse of it, of course, is that if you're staying up, you know, too late, then it, it causes just unbelievable havoc on the body and increases your risk of all those various different diseases. So super, super important. Yeah. So that's true. You guys, what you just heard is you can't catch up on your sleep. You can't make up for it over a weekend by sleeping in or whatnot. You have to make good consistent changes. <laughs> Regular habits. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say that we always have like all the most unpopular answers for people, you know, like, <laughs> no sugar, you got to sleep, you have to exercise, right. you got to give yeah. up some of the package processed stuff, but it's true. And what I love about your book too, is that there's so much research. And so you've gone through and found all this, you know, what you said was statistically significant you want to talk a little bit about that? Cause like, to me, like research is so hard. Like people are either like great at it, which I think you really are, or they just don't know where to turn because we know that, you know, research can be very misleading. So were you purposefully tossing out any of the stuff that wasn't significant? Well, sure. Yeah. 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 As, a, as a doctor, I mean, part of my training is, is, uh, was about how to read studies and then how to figure out, okay, 
which are the ones that actually have a good study design. So for instance, the kind of the gold standard of a study design is considered a placebo controlled, like double blind placebo controlled study. So this is where the patient doesn't know, the doctor doesn't know what treatments that they're getting. Mm -hmm. And uh, either they're getting the, the treatment or they're getting a placebo. And uh, so there's just no way that you can influence it, you know, in that way. And then you follow people into the future. So it's a prospective study rather than doing what we call retrospective, which is looking back into the past. So that's the very best study design. But there's many different kinds of study designs, but we can um, really learn how to read those and understand, can you make the conclusions that they're making or can you not? And that really is a special skill. And like I said, a lot of doctors don't even have that, you know, either, but um, I was, you know, really trained in that. So I looked through, okay, what are these, you know, good studies? And this is a, a really good point too, where um, when we look at nutritional supplements, because this is another area, we'll say of controversy where, um, you know, some people, you know, will say, oh, you know, vitamins or supplements, you know, they don't do anything. It's just expensive pee. <laughs> but um, actually there's been thousands and thousands of studies that are really well designed that, um, that show that various different foods or, or uh, constituents that we find in plants um, have just tremendous, you know, anti-cancer effects. And there's been incredible research on it. So this is, for instance, you know, when I first came out with my book, one of the most common things that I hear is, oh, there's no research on it. And it's like, oh, really? Well, <laughs> if we take an example of the Indian spice turmeric. So turmeric is a root that's a cousin of ginger. It's got this bright yellow, uh, orange kind of color to it. And it's used in uh, Indian cooking uh, very commonly for making curries and so forth. And it has so many different health properties to it. It seems like it's you know just too good to be true. So they've mapped out over 150 different kinds of uh, mechanisms of action that it has to help to support good health. And then uh, it has over 30 different mechanisms of action that help to diminish your risk of developing cancer or help you to recover from it. And fortunately, the thing is, is that there's been uh, this is the most researched plant that there is. So there's been, I don't like 10 or 15,000 studies in the medical research, you know, right now. And so, uh, you know, really reputable institutions are taking a look at this now. So there's a lot of research that's being done at MD Anderson, which is a big cancer hospital in Houston. Um, and they're great study designs, double blinded, placebo controlled and, and so forth. So we have unbelievable amounts of knowledge on not just turmeric, but, you know, many of the different plants that are out there. It's not that there hasn't been research, there actually has been. And then they're also testing these plants on our genes, you know, again, to find out what genes are being activated, which ones are, are being shut off. So we have very sophisticated understandings of about how these various different plants work. And then, um, you know, one thing that I did when I uh, first came out with my book, The Waking the Warrior God, I thought, you know, well, first of all, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the time. And I remember telling one of my girlfriends, I said, you know, there's like, I mean, there's all these like amazing things from the turmeric and green tea and mataki mushrooms and just on and on. And so she looked at me and she goes, Christine, if you would just put those all into one pill, I'd take it. And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea. 
<laughs> so I met with a really reputable supplement company and I said, Hey, I have this idea. And they said, great, you know, we'll do that. And so we looked to see how many supplements we could get into one tablet. So the whole point, we got seven actually. And the whole point was that, well, you only have to take one supplement rather than seven different ones. Um, it, it really reduces the cost of it. And then the other thing that we did was to look at putting in what we call therapeutic amounts of each of these various different um you know, foods or uh, nutritional supplements, because most of the time, um, supplements don't contain the therapeutic amounts. We looked at the research and it's like, okay, what amount was used? What dosage was used of each of these things that showed that it was most effective. And so that's what we put into, um, what's called protective breast formula. And so it's got these seven different supplements, turmeric, green tea, mataki mushrooms, uh, grapeseed extract, which is a very powerful uh, antioxidant and also helps to regulate excess amounts of estrogen in the body. Then we have a couple different things from cruciferous vegetables. So that's that broccoli, cauliflower and kale uh, group and then vitamin D3. Uh, uh, which is, and we'll talk about in just a minute too because that one is just unbelievably important. But when it first came out, we actually did preliminary studies on women using thermography. So we identified women that looked like that they were at increased risk based on the number of patterns that we were seeing in their breasts. They did not have breast cancer, but they looked like they were at an elevated risk. Right. We put them on the protective breast formula. Normally you take one tablet with breakfast, one tablet with dinner, and we doubled the dose. So we did two tablets with breakfast, two tablets with dinner. And then we re-scanned these women in three months. And we saw the most jaw dropping improvements in that short period of time. Um, you could even imagine, I mean, some of the doctors that were doing interpreters, like they, they've never seen anything, you know, uh, be able to reverse the patterns, you know, that we saw, you know, like that. Um, and then as far as that, I just have a few basic supplements that I recommend for women um, is kind of my uh, preventative um, uh, supplements. So there's another one called Brevail that is made out of flax seeds, the lignans and flax seeds. Brevail is B as in boy, R as in Roger, E as in Edward, V as in Victor, A-I-L, um, made by Barleen's Organic Oils. Um, and so the lignans and flax seeds have about 18 different anti-cancer properties to them and really balance feminine hormones. So it will help to take away hot flashes in people with menopausal symptoms. It reduces PMS symptoms too, but um, also has these like 18 different kind of approaches that uh, as far as um, reducing the risk of developing breast cancer in the first place. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids, you know, turns out to be something that everybody really needs uh, a fairly significant quantity of because our, our bodies have so much of the cells that are made out of fat, all the cell membranes are made out of fat, our brains are coated in fat. So we really need a lot of fat in our diet, but the type of fat is the thing that's the most important. And omega-3 fatty acids have huge anti-cancer effects, anti-inflammatory effects. And so you want to make sure that you're taking uh, enough of those. So we're talking like fish oils and, and uh, flax oils. Um, vitamin D3 is another one where the research on it in the last decade or so is just, it's like unbelievable. So it's showing us that vitamin D3 really acts in the body like a hormone or a steroid hormone rather than um, just a vitamin. And it's essential for every single cell in the body. 
And so the research is looking at what happens if we don't have enough vitamin D, which most people don't, like 80 to 90% of Americans test low in it, uh, versus, versus people that have enough vitamin D, we, we kind of shoot for a 40 to 60 nanogram per milliliter range. So your blood levels are super important. The only way you will know what those are to get your blood levels checked. But we find if we get those levels up to the 40 to 60% range, we see like I said, just astounding, almost too good to be true kind of results with it. So we've seen up to 70% reduction in breast cancer and 80% reduction in uh, diabetes type two, a really significant reduction in cardiovascular diseases, neurological diseases like Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis. I mean, you can just go on and on and including COVID-19. I mean, it's kind of this amazing thing where they find that if people's vitamin D levels are elevated that most of them, I mean, just like it works as well as the vaccine, like most of them just have mild symptoms and nobody died in the studies where people had their levels up to that, you know, uh, closer to 60 nanogram uh, range. And then they found even if the people came in to the hospital with COVID and were bolused vitamin D, those people had significant improved outcomes, didn't have to go to the intensive care unit, weren't, you know, on mechanical ventilation, and nobody died, you know, from that. So that one, I just think is critically important for people, um, you know, to make sure that they've got, you know, adequate vitamin D. It's not even expensive. It's like one of the no. vitamins. That's right. No, it's, it's super cheap. And then the, the last thing that I recommend, there's a mushroom formula so that we find that mushrooms are the things that help to support our immune system more than anything else, um, any food group that we've ever seen. So again, I recommend it right now too, with, you know, the pandemic, uh, but of all the different mushroom formulas, the one that I've been most impressed with is one that's called AHCC. So AHCC, it's out of Japan. It's been around for about 40 years or so, huge amounts of studies on it. And it shows that it's the most effective formula in helping to support all the different cell types um, in the immune system. And because of that, so our immune system is really what keeps us well. We form cancer cells all the time. That's a normal part of our physiology. And if our immune system is healthy, it will identify them and eliminate them. And uh, again, it also helps to eliminate foreign invaders like bacteria and viruses too. Um, so AHCC helps to support uh, all those different immune cells. And so what we find with that is that there, the studies show there's a significant reduction in the incidence of all sorts of cancers, not just, you know, breast, prostate, colon cancers, but also like living, liver cancers, melanomas, and, you know, on and on. Um, they've also found that it's effective against viral infections. And if you have chronic HPV infections of the cervix, you know, that can increase the risk of cervical cancer. They found that um, AHCC is the only thing they've ever tested that will kill that virus. So they uh, did some studies at the at MD Anderson University of Texas Health Sciences, where they gave women AHCC for the course of six months and found that um, in the vast majority of them, these women had chronic HPV infections, it completely eradicated it. And again, there's no Western medicine, you know, that will do that. And then a few years ago, they found that ACC was effective against Lyme disease, both in the acute and chronic phase, as far as, you know, decreasing the symptoms and the severity. So I just think that's a great general formula to be taking. I take it every day, uh, you know, as a preventative, but it's also particularly good for cancers. In Japan, actually, if you get 
uh, cancer, uh, they will treat you with AHCC in the hospitals because the survival statistics are so much better. It's also, um, have you heard of turkey tail mushroom? Yes. Uh huh. And that came from China, I believe, somewhere in the Orient. And it talks about uh-huh. how it can uncloak and help the immune system detect these cancers that otherwise go rogue that are not identifiable by the immune right. system, right? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different mushrooms that have great uh, anti-cancer effects, you know, with them. Um, Mataki mushrooms, you know, or another, I mean, really almost all of them have things that are helping, you know, with the immune system and and they all have their kind of unique things, you know, that they do. And in addition to that, that kind of distinguish them, you know, from each other. I just want to point out, because you said something and I was going to ask you to comment on this because I know when I first heard it, I was like, holy cow, that seems alarming. And when I've repeated it at other lectures that we've given, people are like kind of like awestruck about it, but we all have cancer cells in our body at Mm -hmm. any given time, correct? That is correct. That's just a normal part of our physiology. So we're forming them all the time. And again, if we have a healthy immune system, it identifies them and eliminates them. So the only time that cancers really start to grow, you know, kind of out of control is if something happens that causes your immune system to not be as effective. And probably the most common thing that we see is stress. So when somebody has a significant stress in their life, it just slugs the immune system. And here's a, for instance, as far as the statistics. So they found that if a woman has a serious stress in her life, so we're talking like death of a loved one, loss of a job, you know, something like that. There's a, in the ensuing next five years, there's a 12 times higher risk of developing breast cancer. So it's huge. And this is, you know, one of the reasons I am very adamant about uh, telling people, if you want to be healthy, it kind of is like there's, um, you have to, like, there's not an option. You have to be practicing what we call an effective stress reducing technique daily. So I've been practicing transcendental meditation for almost 30 years. It's just a simple mental technique that you uh, do 20 minutes twice a day, super simple, huge research on it showing that um, what it does is it trains your nervous system to not be as responsive. So you can have the same stress that occurs in your life, but your body doesn't react, you know, as strongly and all those stress hormones, particularly cortisol, if they stay elevated in our bodies, which this past year, I think everybody's, you know, had that as an issue. Uh, it has terrible effects, you know, on the body and really, you know, suppresses the immune system, you know, unbelievably. So if you practice one of these techniques, so I, I'm trained in Ayurveda and, and, um, uh, they have some of the techniques that they use or the meditation, uh, yoga, and uh, is uh, another one that really helps to train the nervous system to not respond as, as uh, robustly. Um, and breathing techniques, uh, they're called pranayama, but just doing some slow breathing or there's, you know, specific instructions kind of alternating nostrils or so forth that can have, you know, tremendous benefit. And traditional Chinese medicine, I mean, they understood that stress, you know, was a, a major contributor to chronic disease. And so they developed um, Qigong, which is like like in Tai Chi. So Tai Chi is this movement and Qigong is really incorporating a lot of uh, breath. So I think it's absolutely important that somebody find one of these techniques 
that really works for them. And then you practice it every day because it's, it's meant to do that, to keep your nervous system trained to not be as reactive. And it's unbelievably uh, protective. There was a study that was done out of Canada that found that people who practice transcendental meditation twice a day for five years, and then they compared it to a kind of matched, you know, population that didn't meditate. And they found that those that meditated had half the incidence of every single diagnosis that you can think of, including accidents. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I've heard some of that research as well. We actually measure, we do heart rate variability in the office. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we brought it in is because people have no clue how stressed they are or the accumulative effects of stress. So right. like before we had that technology, we would just interview people about their stress levels and everybody thought they were doing so much better than they really were. And then we measure them and it spits out like you have the accumulated stress, the effects of like a 70 year old or an 80 year old. And right. people are like, oh my gosh, no wonder. Yeah. And then they start putting it together. Like that's why I feel so tired and exhausted. Right. Yeah. Irritable and on and on and on. But yeah, we do that on a regular basis because people have no clue. How stressful. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. And just after 2020, what we found is even patients who were on program and doing healthy lifestyle mm-hmm. and diet and seemingly all the right things, still their stress on average increased, uh, average of five to 10 years of increased stress accumulatively yeah. in this world. Mm-hmm. So. It is amazing. And there's actually, you know, in thermography, there's actually these patterns that can show up these little heat because they look like kind of speckled or puffy, you know, uh, patterns of heat that are called mottling, M-O-T-T-L-I-N-G, mottling patterns. And so those are things that can indicate that there's really significant increased inflammation in the body or, you know, toxicity, stress can cause them leaky gut syndrome, which, you know, a lot of people have in relationship to stress too. But I'm seeing those, I'm an interpreter for thermography. And so I am seeing an incredible increase in these modeling patterns in people, you know, this year, you know, so it's just, you know, stress is really taking a toll. Yeah. Well, and that was a great segue. That's what I wanted to tell the listeners. Um, we'll wrap up here. I think you and I probably could talk the same language forever and ever. <laughs> Maybe we have like five podcasts worth of material, which is awesome. But Dr. Christine Horner is the doctor who will be interpreting all of the thermography scans that we have. So we've got the um, Florida Medical Thermography will be on site here at Health by Design once a month. And then um, Dr. Christine Horner is an awesome resource to us. She will read the scans and then, you know, we have access to her as well. If somebody needs to consult one-on-one about their scans or for me as as your practitioner, if you're here in the local region working with us, but people are listening to this outside of the Jacksonville region. She's, you know, she's an international resource. So Dr. Horner, tell the listeners, where do they find you? How do we um, get in touch with you and follow and learn more of to soak up more of your information. Uh, sure. Yeah. So the best place is my website, which is drchristinehorner.com. So that's D-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E-H-O-R-N-E-R.com. Um, and there you'll find all sorts of, you know, articles and videos and um, resources. And of course, my books, you know, are, are great resources as well. We talked about the waking the warrior goddess, um, Dr.
Dr. Christine Horner's program to protect against and fight breast cancer and my most recent book, Radiant Health, Ageless Beauty, um, which is a, a guide to how to create extraordinary health and longevity. Um, so just to mention too, I do telephone consultations, you know, with people so we can talk about, you know, any kind of questions that you have about your health, um, then I have that, which you can schedule through my website. Awesome. And we will put all the links that Dr. Christine Horner just mentioned also in the show notes for your easy reference and access. But thank you so much. It's been enlightening. I love that, again, with medical and traditional and alternative getting on the same page. And thank you for providing some of the science behind some of these things that can be done. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Likewise. (laughs) Awesome. I'm Dr. Christy Harvell with Health by Design signing off and good health naturally. Until next time, thanks for listening.